thanks Zile. It's uh, six and a half minutes past twelve. Indeed, this is midday live. We together with you till one this afternoon. My name is Bongi Kwala, and thanks for joining us. Uh, a little later on, we we'll hope to talk to uh, MEC Tikeleti Magadzi. Uh, she is uh, in uh, the in Limpopo, uh, MEC for education there. There was a meeting uh, with uh, the National Minister of Education, Enzi Motsecha, and uh, they expected to brief the media today. And, uh, of course, uh, top of, uh, uh, on the agenda there is the issue of uh, Section 100. So we'll be looking at that if, uh, indeed, that department uh, in Limpopo will be relieved of uh, being uh, administered by the National Department. So we hope to uh, address that particular issue. But also, we'll be hope, uh, hoping to go to Juba in uh, the capital of South Sudan. You heard the heavily armed South Sudanese security forces are guarding key government institutions in the capital. This after President Salva Kiir suspended his cabinet and his main political rival and 17 senior police officers were also relieved of their duties. So we'll be, uh, be talking to uh, someone who's watching the situations and developments in Juba there. But our top story this hour, labor unions involved in failed wage talks in the mining sector, in the gold sector to be precise, say the decision to declare a dispute is an effort to prevent a deadlock. Talks between labor unions, Solidarity, the National Union of Mine Workers and UASA and the Chamber of Mines collapsed this morning in Johannesburg. Gold producers have offered a wage increase of 5% up from an initial offer of 4%. Unions demand up to a 100% increase depending on their seniority. Our sister show AM Live earlier spoke to the Executive Director at the Chamber of Mines, Dr. Elise Tradom, and this is what she had to say. It is um, a difficult round of negotiations for various reasons, uh, but particularly difficult for the mining industry and especially for the gold mining companies and we've been trying to get this message across to the unions and to their members that the gold industry is in a very tough place. And, you know, we have to be very prudent when we make wage offers. We have to think of the sustainability of the industry and not only for the companies, but also for the employees. After the wage negotiations, we still want a mining industry, a gold mining industry, where we can all work and contribute together. From being number one producer in the world, we are now ranked the sixth biggest producer of gold in the world. Even Peru has overtaken us. So uh, there might be some mines, you know, over the recent period uh, that would have increased uh, production, but generally speaking, for the gold mining industry, we have been uh, producing less and less uh, gold over the past decade. And uh, that's uh, Dr. Elise Tradom. She is uh, the executive director at the Chamber of Mines. Let's stay with this story now, but talk to the uh, to Solidarity General Secretary Gideon Duplessis. Good afternoon to you, sir. Uh, good afternoon, Bongi. Together with uh, NUM, uh, Solidarity has declared a dispute. Just talk us through that. That's correct. Um, Bongi, we'd like to put a positive spin on it. At this stage, the negotiations uh, was uh, was very difficult, and there was uh, not a lot of um, accurate movement. You know, on the one hand, we have the employer starting on a very low uh, opening offer, some of the unions uh, fairly high, uh, demand and in the end we realized that we're heading towards a, towards a deadlock because um, some of the parties have painted themselves into the corner with regards to uh, the opening offers and opening demands. So that was one of the reasons why we feel if we go into a dispute, we actually prevent a deadlock in light of the fact that the facilitator or facilitators will then be appointed and they determine what is the bargaining arena. They actually... Um, then determine in what area do we negotiate in. So that was the first reason, so we can get more momentum. And we've also realized or noticed that the Chamber of Mines negotiators, they're very credible, very experienced, but we can see they've got such a restricted uh, mandate that there's no room for movement from them. That's mm. not the one reason. The second reason, Bongi, 
was that it was also fairly difficult. It was the first time that AMCO is now part of the gold negotiations, and there's a specific protocol, there's specific rules of the game that you have to adhere to, and, and AMCO simply don't. They come and go as they please. Their contribution is, is of such a nature that it's more destructive. There are times when uh, they proposed specific amendments, and then later on they proposed amendments on their own amendments, and, and also uh, they agreed to certain things in principle, and the following day they, they retracted. So we also feel if we have those facilitators involved, they determine the rules of engagement. And so we actually, what we're asking for is for a referee or referees to be appointed so that it's more structured and more focused and more controlled. Mm. So at this stage, we are actually hoping this will lead us on the path of a settlement. But uh, what, what will be a, a reasonable settlement for you? From a solidarity's point of view, our opening um, demand is 10%, and the way that we justify it is to say that CPI sits at 5.6%, but worker inflation is higher because those are the things that affect workers. For instance, your administrative prices, uh, fuel prices, education prices, um, uh, health care, etc., etc., and that is approximately 3% above CPI. Then we've added another factor, and we say that during the strike and the unrest situation, our members continued working with a gentleman's agreement that they will be remunerated that never materialized. That's how we got to the 10%, but we believe between around about 3% or maybe slightly higher above CPI, that is where we believe worker inflation is, and, and that is what we believe we need to target. So mm. the end result is, Bongi, that employers will have to go a little bit further than what they budgeted for, and our members will have to accept less than they originally asked us to negotiate for them. Much as you have uh, declared a dispute with uh, NUM, uh, but uh, clearly you are not partners in this because you you say you will be satisfied with up to 10%, 3% more than uh, the PPI, but they are demanding in the region of 60, 60, 70, up to 100%. So surely you lose each other as you walk together round about there. Well, Bongi, I'm actually glad that you're asking me this question because I, I can't talk on behalf of, of uh, NUM, but what I can say is there is an element of disinformation. The NUM, in their wage demands, they said that for entry-level workers, the minimum wage for underground workers is 5000 they propose uh, 8,000 entry level. Uh, the, then the employers came and they said, yeah, that's a 60% jump and across the board they're negotiating for 60%. That was never what the NUM asked for. They've merely indicated that that should be the ideal minimum wage for the mining industry and they are also realistic that it may take a few years until we get there. And unfortunately, you know, um, now we all painted with the same brush and it looked like we've got uh, ludicrous demands. I can't speak on behalf of AMCU asking for a 12,500 entry-level wage, but it would be wonderful if we can get to that very soon, but we are also realistic. So, Solidarity and the NUM, we've been negotiating together for 30 years at the Chamber of Mines. Uh, we know what our members' expectations are, but we're also fully aware and conscious of the fact that the industry that we are negotiating in is also under huge pressure. But you must also understand the dynamics of negotiations. Um, there, you know, there are certain things that's just part of the process, but the most important thing is where we end up. And there is a reality. So I believe that solidarity in the NUM especially, you know, uh, we will approach it with uh, caution and also with the required maturity to make sure that we rather settle this matter than have to go to a last resort strike. All right. Uh, thank you very much. That's Gideon Duplessis. He is uh, Solidarity's General Secretary. And uh, they're saying that uh, they're giving themselves, or at least they're looking at about uh, the third week of August for matters either to be resolved or to be in final deadlock. So we'll be talking to them quite a great deal. Noom and AMCO as well, as well as uh, the Chamber of uh, Industry should be the Chamber of Mines. It's at 16 minutes past 12. This is Midday Live on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Further afield, heavily armed South Sudanese security forces 
are guarding key government institutions in the capital, Juba, after President Salva Kiir suspended his cabinet and his main political rival. Seventeen senior police officials also faced or failed to escape the chop. The sackings have sparked concern over potential instability in the fledging nation, which is awash with guns driven by ethnic rivalries and still reeling from decades of war. To give us uh, more information and uh, perspective on this, we joined on the line by the spokesperson for the South Sudan Embassy, Peter Bio. Good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon, sir. Maybe help us understand the current situation in uh, South Sudan. We're hearing of uh, uh, security forces guarding key government uh, institutions. Just explain to us, what are you hearing from uh, back at home? Uh, thank you for the opportunity, sir. Uh, what we are hearing from home is that uh, the situation following the uh, relief of the cabinet, as you stated, is calm. Uh, the situation is normal. Uh, the population is uh, on standby to hear more news about the cabinet uh, formation. Uh, and therefore, uh, the, the, the normal people in the market are going about their business. Of course, uh, the, the security forces are always there to fulfill uh, the security aspect of the nation. Uh, should it be that uh, there are situations such as, uh, uh, you know, lack of the cabinet in place. So everything at the moment uh, is, is still very normal. But why this move by the president? Well, the move is informed by a lot of processes and discussions place in the country uh, following the, the, the independence of the country in terms of reducing the number of the, of the ministries in the country. We have, uh, we've been having 29 ministries since 2005, and of course, uh, Sudan is still a nation going through development, through challenges of service delivery following long years of wars. In that way, uh, the president and the, and the leadership of the country came to an understanding that uh, this number of ministries is unsustainable and therefore need to be reduced. The understanding or the agreement then came to reduce them to 19 ministries. And in doing so, the president obviously needed to cut off 10 ministries and therefore have to relieve the whole cabinet so that he can restructure the, the government in terms of forming the 19 ministry and then fill them with a new cabinet. Mm. So this is, a, uh, this is this, these are steps that have been understood before they were implemented by them. So, uh, and uh, what, what does this then uh, do or say about your relations, about South Sudan's relations with, uh, with uh, Sudan, which is not Sudan? Uh, has it got anything to do with it? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the Sudan and South Sudan are connected by various economic factors, uh, such as the pipeline that carries the, the oil from South Sudan to the port in the Red Sea. This pipeline has been of serious negotiation with, between the two countries for a very long time. Of recent, the Sudan has been threatening that uh, they want to shut down the pipeline with an accusation that South Sudan is supporting their rebels, which obviously does not have any evidence uh, whatsoever to South Sudan doing so. And the, the leadership in South Sudan therefore came to a conclusion that this is just an excuse by Sudan when they actually have their own uh, different agenda of trying to undermine uh, the, the, the existing nation of South Sudan uh, by depriving it of oil revenues, which obviously uh, finance as part of its development. So it, there, there's a lot that is connected, and, and the country now need to uh, implement serious austerity measures by reducing the number of ministries and survive on its other revenue mechanisms, such as agriculture, the little finances that it gets in mass, then uh, invest them in, in, in areas that can empower the economy. So definitely the, the, the pipeline story plays into the whole idea of reducing the number of ministries. 
But also there are reports that uh, Mr. Rick Marcher, the, the deputy president, uh, was fired uh, following his campaigning to become uh, the chairman of the ruling Sudan People's Liberation Movement uh, at a convention to be held next year. Now that uh, would have enabled him to become president when general elections are held next in, in 2015. Uh, the, the chairmanship obviously currently held by uh, the current uh, the incumbent president. So uh, can you place credence on, on that? Well, uh, the, the former vice president, Dr. Riyad Maitar, is still the deputy chairman of SPLM, which is the party uh, that is currently in uh, in charge of South Sudan. And Dr. Riyad Maitar still have that, uh, you know, uh, possibility on his side of continuing with his ambition, which he has declared, as you said. And I don't think it was the reason that uh, prompted his release. The president obviously needed to narrow down the government and needed to do it handedly as he is the one who is in charge without really having anybody advising as to how it should be done. And therefore, going of Riyak Machar is not actually uh, associated with, with the, the, the political competition uh, that you have mentioned. He still have a membership in the party and he still have that uh, uh, possibility on his side. So the two should be separated. How far is uh, South Sudan from resolving its uh, its dispute with uh, with uh, Sudan? For instance, the issue of uh, oil. We know that Sudan has uh, halted the production of oil uh, uh, flowing into into South Sudan. But how far are you from finding each other? At the end of the day, you are one nation, and there was a cessation that allowed then for South Sudan to 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 separate from yourselves from 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 South from Sudan. What? Well, South Sudan has always been open uh, to the possibilities of cooperation, to the possibilities of coexistence, to the possibilities of viabilities as two nations who know that they have a lot of benefits from each other. South Sudan then committed itself to many agreements that have been signed and has been doing its part in terms of implementing them. At the moment, following the accusation, repeated accusation by the Sudan, that South Sudan support the rebel, the AU uh, and its panel, the high-level uh, panel on, on implementation of, of, of the CPA, headed by uh, former President Thabo Mbeki, has formed uh, a committee to go and investigate this accusation by Sudan, that South Sudan is, uh, is supporting its rebel, and also to go and uh, find out in the Sudan also uh, ways that Sudan is supporting all the rebels in South Sudan, by, uh, whereby they arm all the militias to come and carry out the instabilities in the South. So that, that committee is currently in Khartoum and will go to Juba to go and find out, uh, you know, justification for this accusation and hopefully would be able to open the way forward. However, South Sudan has come to that conclusion that Sudan is just using that as an excuse to basically uh, mess with, 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 with the agreement. Otherwise, uh, South Sudan is ready any time to say, if Sudan has changed, we have never created any reverse to, to the agreement, and therefore we are ready to march forward. So South Sudan is willing to cooperate and to, to do whatever that is good for the two nations. But okay. the ball is in Khartoum court. All right. We'll be chatting some more in the uh, uh, future. Thank you very much, Peter Bio. He is uh, the spokesperson for the South Sudan Embassy here in Pretoria at 25 minutes past 12. A top story this hour. The Legal Resource Center says it is concerned about uh, maintaining public confidence in the credibility of the Marikana Commission of Inquiry. Looking at the markets at this hour, gold is trading at $1,315.90 an ounce, platinum at $1,435.50 an ounce. The rand is uh, trading at 9 rand 80 against the US dollar, at 15 rand to the pound and at 12 rand 90 to the euro. Ever wondered how long it takes to renew your TV license? Why not pop into the Brooklyn Mall from the 23rd to 28th of July in Pretoria and put us to the test? Our friendly TV license staff will be able to update your address and contact details, even assist you with completing a monthly or annual debit order, as well as accepting payments via cash, debit or credit card. 
what's more is that we also have an exciting competition where you can win a 32-inch LCD TV for free. So, for quick and convenient service, come and visit the TV license kiosk in the Brooklyn Mall at the Woolworths Court from the 23rd until the 28th of July. TV licenses, making a difference. Are you a lover of the finer things in life? Do you have a passion for music, visual art, theatre, cinema, literature and good food? Then Classic Feel magazine is essential reading for you. Published monthly, Classic Feel is South Africa's number one arts, culture and lifestyle magazine. Get the latest issue of Classic Feel magazine now at selected newsagents and bookshops. Find out more at www.classicfeel.co.za. The joint AU-UN envoy says a decade since a conflict broke out in Sudan's Darfur region, the security situation there remains volatile. In his first briefing uh, to an open session of uh, the Security Council since assuming the position in April, Joint Special Representative Mohamed Chambas described a steady upsurge in ethnic violence throughout the Darfur state uh, in the first half of uh, 2013. Sean Bryce Peace reports. The provisional agenda for this meeting is reports of the Secretary-General on the Sudan. The agenda is adopted. Ten years later and still people are dying in Darfur as tensions grow over access to land, water and mineral resources. The joint AU-UN Special Representative Mohamed Ibn Chambas described a deteriorating security environment. Since the beginning of the year, Fighting between the government of Sudan, GOS, and non-signatory movements on the one hand, and on the other, inter- and intra-ethnic clashes have led not only to loss of life, but also to a situation of protracted displacement, socio-economic dislocation, and loss of property for the civilian populations. The Joint Envoy described a peace process that remains incomplete, where all rebel movements have yet to sign up to the Doha document. Increased militarization and proliferation of arms among civilian populations in Darfur, accompanied by deterioration in the humanitarian conditions for host communities and IDP populations, has meant that inter-ethnic violence has actually brought about more death injury and displacement than the fighting between the government and non-signatories in 2013. He called the implementation of the Doha document for peace unacceptably slow, despite it being the only viable option towards a political solution. While the Darfur Development Strategy, a mechanism to implement development in the region, remains underfunded. Honoring the pledges made at the donor conference in a timely manner would help to change the dynamic on the ground as DDS projects are aimed at improving the living conditions of conflict-affected populations and to create a more conducive environment towards peace. While the UN Security Council must now weigh up the requirements and posture of a peacekeeping mission increasingly under threat and whose mandate must be renewed before the end of the month, the envoy has called for a more flexible mandate and for better training and equipment for the mission. Air support continues to be a huge challenge for UN missions in hotspots all over the world. Sherman Bryceby's SABC News at the United Nations, New York. From the UN back into the studio here, it's 12.30. Good afternoon, it's Ilesak with you. Thank you very much. We'll see you at the top of the hour. But uh, let's say good afternoon to Nancy Richards. What's coming up on Otherwise Today, Nancy? Hi there. Well, what we have on the show today, later on we'll be having a touch of drama, in fact. We'll be talking to an actress turned producer of a play that's been described as a traditional gem. We'll also be talking to a director turned traveller because she's off to the Edinburgh Festival with her production. But before that, a story that comes up as regular as clockwork on this show, understandably, helping South Africa's young women deal with menstruation with dignity. So that's what we have lined up to join us, and it's right after the news at 1. Thanks, Bongi. 
Thank you very much. We'll see you then. Let's go further north. Zimbabweans will go to elections next Wednesday. The bulk of the more than 6 million registered voters are in rural areas where new studies suggest that living standards have declined since the country introduced the U.S. dollar in 2008. Our correspondent Shingai Nyoga visited Marange in eastern Zimbabwe, an area famous for its diamonds, and filed this report for us. Amos Munchapera, drawing water from a well. Hoisting a bucket on his head, he makes his way through the barren fields to a Poland dugger hut home nearby. On paper, he should be well off. Zimbabwe ranks highly on the index of natural resources per person. But in reality, Muchapir has not held a dollar bill in his hands for weeks. Life in the world-famous Marange diamond fields has steadily worsened, and rural Zimbabweans say jobs and improved living standards will be a deciding factor as they go to the polls. Amos Muchapira says, someone my age shouldn't be sitting around in the rural areas. I should be working for my family. And despite the promises, we haven't seen any improvement to show that these diamonds are working for us. The communities here are patiently waiting for tarred roads, upgraded schools and jobs promised during campaigns in the last elections. Muchapera says some roads were graded recently, just in time for Mugabe's campaign entourage to roll through. It's a community frustrated by empty promises, and they say the veteran leader will have a tough time trying to regain the area from the movement for democratic change. No, we, we, we say this is an old party, and nothing is being done. The president came and launched this uh, trust. And all of the five companies in Chiazu are there, the Anjini, Marangi Resources, Zimbada. They were said that they've donated about 10 million, 10 million from each company. But as the community, we never received this. This is, they are just talking with a moving animal in air. I don't want jobs now. I'm already over 60 years. But I want my children to have jobs so that I can have sugar. So, at present moment, I'm keeping my children and my grandchildren. I'm now feeding them myself. So, it's very hard for me. That's why we are looking into all these old things. Missing diamond funds are at the center of the discontent. The finance minister claims that companies have failed to remit hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue to Treasury. While villagers wallow in poverty, the mining companies are shelling out. An airstrip built in the diamond fields to shuttle rough gems out of the area into the international markets. The gems have also financed a multi-million dollar defense college in the capital, complete with fancy townhouses and canteens. Politicians are rounding off campaigns ahead of Wednesday's polls each confident of victory, but misplaced priorities and empty promises could come back to haunt them. Shingai Nyoka, SABC News, Marange, Zimbabwe. Staying in Zimbabwe, but here at home, a network of progressive SA civil society organization, PASOP Zimbabwe Solidarity Forum, is protesting outside Parliament in Cape Town in support of free and fair elections in Zimbabwe. The organization represents women, labor, faith-based, human rights, and student formations. They want, among other things, the SADC and the African Union to vigorously uphold the principles enshrined in SADC's guidelines. They are also expecting to hand over a memorandum in Parliament today. For more on this now, we joined on the line by PASOP's Community Liaison Officer, Anthony Muteti. Good afternoon to you, Anthony. Uh, good afternoon. Talk us uh, through your organization first. What are you representing? We are actually representing all immigrants, now um, asylum seekers, uh, refugees, and uh, we represent workers as well, students, and um, uh, anyone who seeks uh, assistance. All right, Anthony, I'm going to ask you to speak up a little bit. We're struggling to hear you here, and also maybe if you can just move a little bit away from, from the noise. So you, you, you represent really a, a plethora of, of people and organizations, uh, but uh, the, the views that you are representing is what I'm asking. Sorry? 
I'm asking the, the, the views. What, what kind of views are you representing as an organization? Okay, I'll tell you what. We're going to call you back and see if we can get a, uh, get you on a better line or improve at least uh, that uh, particular line that you're on. Uh, what a sober decision by advocates Mbofu and Bezos. Americana families, half South Africans, they are poor more than uh, Mandela's, says Sianda in uh, Kwatugusa there. And uh, that one coming through on 34701. But uh, Joe Omar here is uh, asking us uh, here at the SBC to at least also uh, give uh, uh, Sudan uh, uh, time to be able to to talk to us uh, he he says joe we give uh, time a uh, lot of time actually to south sudan uh, we're giving a lot of coverage there and they're making all sorts of uh, accusations well i'll tell you what joe uh, we'll put in a call to uh, the sudan embassy and see if they can also talk to us about uh, that particular issue we'll be going back to the zimbabwe story talking to anthony muteti there he's basop's community liaison officer uh, we have him on the line and uh, let's see if the line is improved. Anthony, welcome back. Uh, thanks very much. All right, uh, I think I can hear you clearly now. You can clear, hear me loud and clear now. But uh, uh, I, I'm saying, what is it that you'd like to see happen in Zimbabwe? You represent quite a, a, a large uh, base of organization, organizations and individuals, women, labor, faith-based, human rights and students. You, your issue really is about Zimbabwe. What is it that you want to see happen? There, there are elections happening next week in Zimbabwe. Well, we, we are expecting to see free and fair elections. That is uh, one of the most important things. We also expect to see an election that is free from violence. And we are expecting to see an election where the playing field is level. In terms of uh, both uh, media coverage and in terms of um, the voters all being um, uh, uh, correct. So these are the issues that we are trying to, to, to raise. But, uh, I mean, how are you, are you raising those issues? Are you there on the ground and do you have people representing you on the ground in Zimbabwe who are telling you otherwise that the signs maybe are pointing south? Well, we, we have people who keep on informing us and we also follow the media quite a lot. And we, we learned recently that uh, the special vote did not go very well. And uh, if we base things on that, if we base our argument on that, you can clearly see that um, a lot has to be improved. And uh, it has not only come out in the media, even um, regional leaders have come out to say something needs to be corrected. And we are saying if... This modern government couldn't service about 70,000 people only. Uh, how about six registered million voters? Uh, mm. How are they going to be able to, to save all the six, six million voters? And, and what is your greatest uh, fear? Our greatest fear is that um, there will be a lot of rigging of the election because already we have seen that about. 4,000 political services not vote, and what is even those that voted from voting again, if the voters vote is key. This is, this is one of the uh, biggest worries we have. And uh, we are also worried that um, there has been a report of uh, victimization of opposition leaders. Some have been uh, arrested, some have been just harassed by the police, and uh, we feel uh, strongly that this is unfair. And uh, we also feel that the DC, which is supposed to cover all the political parties, is covering only just one political party. All right, uh, Anthony, I'm going to have to let you go. Uh, the line really has not improved. Anthony Muteti, but thank you very much for talking to us. He is Basop's community liaison officer. Basop uh, is uh, Basop Zimbabwe Solidarity Forum is uh, protesting outside uh, the parliament in Cape Town uh, in support of free and fair elections there. They represent women, labor, faith, human rights, and student formations. It's 19 minutes to one right now. Security expert Paul O'Sullivan 
says Czech businessman Rodovan Krejcia has himself to blame for an attempt on his life. Yesterday, Krejcia survived an attempted assassination outside his Bedford View office east of Johannesburg. Several shots from a car were reportedly fired at him while he parked his car outside his office near Eastgate. The weaponized car burst into flames after the shooting. Edwin City reports. The attempted hit on Kretscher was carried out using a packed red Volkswagen Polo with 12-gun barrels hidden behind its rear number plate. That took place in Bedford View on Houghton's East End yesterday. Kretscher said the round missed him by about a meter, adding that he's a lucky man. He says at first he thought firecrackers were going off before seeing the side of his Mercedes-Benz riddled with bullets. The empty car was parked in exactly the right spot to take aim at him. The car burst into flames shortly after spraying around two dozen bullets. It has now emerged that the poll was stolen in April. It's believed that the shooting is related to a turf war within Johannesburg's criminal underworld. The attempted hit on Kretscher is the latest in a string of underworld dealings that have led to the death of several men in Johannesburg and Cape Town. Among them are German supercar conversion specialist Uwe Gambela, teaser strip club boss Lolly Jackson, and security boss and Kretscher associate Cyril Beaker. Gambela imported luxury cars for Jackson. He was allegedly lured here with a business proposition to start a Gambela franchise with Jackson. Leaked cell phone records show Jackson made his last call to George Luca, who, according to police, had just been on the phone with Kretscher just before Jackson was killed. Polo Sullivan has been investigating Kretscher for some time now. Everywhere he goes, there's bodies falling over. If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And this man certainly lives by the sword. The fugitive arrived in South Africa five years ago with his family on a fake passport after he fled his country. He had allegedly defrauded government more than 225 million rand. He's currently fighting extradition to the Czech Republic after being sentenced in absentia last year for money laundering. Polo Sullivan says Kretscher is not wanted in this country. Kretscher shouldn't have been allowed in the country in the first place. Now, when you have a thug like this who gets into a place like South Africa, they create their own crime wave, and that's what this man's done. He's been involved in criminal activity. He's not had a proper job since the day he's arrived, and yet he's living larger than life. Police have now launched a manhunt following an attempt on the life of the convicted criminal. The police, Lungile Zamini. Police are investigating a case of attempted murder following an incident in which uh, the projectiles were fired into Mr. Kreger's car. This happened every business premises in Bedford Bay. This case, we don't know who carried out the crime. No one has been arrested. It's still unclear at this stage who wants Kreger dead. Edwin City, time now for your lunchtime market updates. Today's JSE report is brought to you by Telcom Business. Convergence. One solution. One service provider. Telecom Business. Good afternoon to Sudhir Singh of Sasfin Securities. How are the markets looking today, Sudhir? Bungie Global Markets have opened on the back foot this morning with Asian stocks trading lower on weaker metal prices. Coal futures were down overnight after sharp gains in previous sessions. Uh, European stocks are also trading lower as investors sit on the sideline ahead of uh, second quarter UK growth data. Over on Wall Street, the stocks declined last night on the back of a mixed bag in terms of earnings announcements and rising borrowing costs. Both uh, Caterpillar and AT&T reported a drop in second quarter profits. However, Boeing did report, ha- did report higher profits. Just take a look at uh, the U.S. stock features this morning. It is pointing to further losses later on this afternoon when markets open. On the local front, uh, in the absence of any... Uh, Local market moving data, the JSE has followed its global counterparts lower, with the miners leading to the downside, and in particular the gold miners after seeing some gains yesterday. Taking a look at the local indices, we've got the gold index, which is down around just over 3.5%. Resource 10 index is down 2%. Industrial 25 index is down half a percent, and the financial index is down 1%. Overall, the market is down around 415 points, or just over 1% to 40,481. And uh, stocks on the move today? On the upside, we have uh, Implats, which is up uh, just under 1.5% at 95 rands and 40 cents. 
Vodacom is up uh, just under half a percent at 114 rands and 90 cents. MTN uh, is also up uh, just under half a percent at 175 rands and 60 cents. Naspers is up 0.3% at 782 rands and 90 cents. And on the downside, we have uh, Harmony, which is down just over 5% at 36 rands and 40 cents. Anglo Gold is down almost 4% at 132 rands and 20 cents. Woolworths is down almost 2% at 64 rands. And lastly, we have Bala World, which is down 1% at 81 rands and 20 cents. And uh, your latest market indicators, Sadir? Currently, we have gold, which is trading at $1,315.90 an ounce. Platinum is at $1,435.50 an ounce. Brand crude is at $106.80 per barrel. And finally, we have the rand, which is trading at $9.80 to the dollar. 15 rands to the pound and 12 rand 90 cents to the euro. That's it from me, Bongi. Thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Sudhir Singh of Sasfin Securities. This feature was brought to you by Telcom Business. Talk to Telcom Business about getting you on the journey to convergence with a tailor-made solution. Telcom Business. Marilyn, please call and cancel my exercise therapy session with a calisthenics posture gait and lower lumbar vertebra specialist. The chiropractor, sir? Yes, that's the word I was looking for. Using several words when one will get the job done doesn't make sense. Neither does using several providers when you can get voice, mobile, fixed data, cloud and IT from one service provider. Call 10217, click telcom.co.za forward slash business or visit a Telcom Direct store and get a tailor-made solution. Convergence, one solution, one service provider. Telcom Business. 12 minutes to 1. Lon Min, the world's third largest platinum producer, has released its third quarter production figures. The company recorded an 8% dip bruised by strike disruptions. However, it says it is on track to meet its full year target. Murafet Tabana reports. After a wave of labor unrest and violence last year, Lon Min's finances were left so battered. It had to tap shareholders for cash and has been battling to return to full production ever since. For the third quarter, total platinum production was over 186,000 ounces compared to over 202,000 ounces recorded a year ago. Afina Capital's Andrew Jayanu elaborates. Their guidance for the full year um, didn't change, so they're still expecting to be in excess of 700,000 ounces of platinum. Um, production and then about 660,000 of of platinum sold because they'll sell all that production that they didn't um, sell in this quarter, they'll sell it next quarter. And then the cost guidance was maintained as well, you know, being less than 8% up on year on year. Um, And I think um, Lonman, out of all the SAP GM producers, looked like they're in, in one of the better operational positions just because I think they've worked very hard on getting their flexibility up. Platinum sales also came down, dented by problems at Lonman's number two furnace and a shutdown of its number one furnace. Trader at BP Bernstein, Marco Masilela, says a dip of only 8% shows that the company is on the right track and will meet its full-year production target. The chances are they will make up for that. And remember that another thing that also affected the whole thing, especially the sales thereof, it was the shutdown of one of the smelters. So there were some constraints there. So, yeah, to make up 8%, it is doable. So definitely they should be able to reach the full-year target. And we can see even the markets like the news, as we are talking, the shades up 1.75%. Wage negotiations between unions and lawnmen will start soon. Joanne maintains that platinum companies and their workers find themselves in a difficult position as mining companies are not in a position to accede to the demands of workers. The expectation is that, that these negotiations are going to reach a log ahead, and invariably when that happens, I guess the risk of strikes are quite high. You know, hopefully they can work it out and get to a reasonable number that, that, that is for the, the employees and, and that the companies can actually manage. Meanwhile, Lonman says although its operations continue to exceed its renewal plan, it remains alert to the risks to production associated with safety stoppages and the uncertain labor relations landscape. Last week, the National Union of Mine Workers case was struck off the roll. Noom had applied to the Labor Court to suspend the 90-day notice period for the derecognition of it as the largest union at Lonmin in favor of the Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union. Morafi Tabani, SBC News, Johannesburg.
Statistics South Africa has released the, or rather it will release the June PPI producer price index, uh, also known as factory gate prices. Economists expect June's PPI to increase 5.2% year on year from 4.9% in May. Let's talk now to Patrick Kelly. He is executive manager of Statistics South Africa's economics division. Uh, good afternoon to you, Patrick. Good afternoon. What can you tell us? Uh, we expecting, or at least economists, expecting June's PPI to increase to about 5.2% year-on-year. What's, uh, what's your take? Yes, well, uh, that's, that it was at 5.9%, which was up from the 49 that we recorded in May. Uh, some of the key drivers of the, the year-on-year change were food, uh, which was at 6.3%. Uh, month-on-month food didn't increase that much, uh, but it's coming off a fairly low base from, from the pre- previous period, uh, previous year. Uh, we also see uh, quite a lot of pressure in the coal, plastic, and petrol products, uh, and this may well be a result of uh, increasing oil prices and uh, what we have to pay for the, our oil uh, in, in rands. Um, and I think that what's quite interesting here is we particularly see petrol and diesel as well as fertilizers and other input costs to businesses uh, seeing fairly strong increases. Mm. Uh, and this, this, you know, this may uh, then affect uh, other products uh, going forward. Is this in line with uh, the inflation uh, slowing down to 5.5% year-on-year released yesterday? Yeah, well, look, the, the CPI and the PPI do not have direct links. Uh, you know, half of the CPI services, which we don't cover yet in the PPI. Uh, but certainly if one looks at food prices, uh, particularly the unprocessed food, which we see in both the agriculture part of the PPI, uh, we do see a softening of those uh, at the moment, particularly, for example, meat products uh, have quite low prices. So we do see a strong relationship there. And uh, where are the consumers uh, 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 spending their monies? Well, uh, the, 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 the consumer expenditure we, we measure in, in the CPI, uh, and the weights of the, the CPI, which we updated at the beginning of this year, uh, reflect that consumer expenditure. Uh, and what we see is that uh, people uh, are spending increasingly more on items like electricity and petrol, where we've seen strong uh, uh, price increases over a period of time, and they're not necessarily able to, to find alternative products. Uh, we still see food obviously being uh, a big area of expenditure, but the biggest item in the CPI uh, which people spend their money is on housing. Mm. Uh, and that, that is our largest, our largest one single item. But also producers are faced with uh, uh, ever-increasing input costs. You highlighted uh, petrol, diesel, fuel uh, at large, but electricity costs also not only hitting consumers but also producers. And uh, do you think they pass on those input costs to the consumers? Well, so far there seems to be a fairly muted uh, transmission of those cost increases. Um, I mean, interestingly, uh, we have a big monthly increase in electricity in the PPI this month because ESCOM switches to what it calls its winter tariffs. But that increase is actually smaller than the increase we recorded last year, and this is probably in line with nurses' ruling uh, of a much lower increase for ESCOM. So it may well be that the inflationary impact of some of those big uh, cost drivers is going to be less than what we've seen in the past. Thank you very much, Patrick Kelly. He is uh, the Executive Manager of Statistics South Africa Economics Division. And uh, we were hoping to talk to the MEC uh, of Education in Limpopo, uh, Minister of Basic Education, Angie Motsecha, and uh, the newly appointed Limpopo MEC there for Education, Tikele Dimagadze, are currently briefing the media uh, on uh, issues, uh, among other things, relating to Section 100 of the Constitution, you remember, allowing the move by government to place the Education Department in the province under administration. It's been under administration since uh, 2011. Yes, so we're hoping to get a sense of uh, where this is going right now. It's five minutes to one. The Legal Resource Center says it is concerned about maintaining public confidence in the credibility of the Marikana Commission of Inquiry. The commission was postponed yet again today until Monday. The commission is investigating events that led to the death of 44 people, including mine workers and police, in August last year during a strike at the Lonmin Platinum Mines. Puem Kiza reports. The commission has been postponed to see what the outcomes will be to get interim funding for the lawyers representing the mine workers. Commission Chairperson Judge Ian Fallam. In the circumstances, it would seem that to be consistent with the stance that we adopted on Monday, that before we consider the postponement application as such, we should wait to see 
least in Kumanda, what is the result of the endeavours to obtain interim funding on behalf of those who, of the, um, the, the injured and, and arrested parties. So in the circumstances, the order we make is that the sitting of the Commission will be adjourned until Monday. Delegal Resources Centre is worried about the repeated postponements. George Bezos says it's important that the justice system is seen to be served by the Commission that is mandated to investigate the causes of the tragedy. He says they will only come to participate in the Commission once the issue of funding has been resolved. At this stage you must place on record that in accordance with the instructions of our client will no longer be appearing before the Commission or participating in its proceedings until the issue of funding of legal representation of the parties concerned has been resolved. We wish to assure the Commission of our commitment that once this issue has been satisfactorily resolved, we will once more be available to participate in these proceedings. Representatives for family members and trade union AMCU stood by Bezos. Debo Homosikili explains. Uh, Chair, indeed that's the position. I only came here to uh, advise the commission of our current position, which is still that um, both the families and AMCU will not participate up until the whole funding problem has been resolved on, uh, for, the, for the arrested and the, and the injured. Chair. Therefore, I cannot participate or share any views in terms of the proposed or proposal by the evidence industry. Evidence leader Jeff Badlender made several proposals. Matters stand down until Monday morning at 9.30 to hear whether the application for interim funding has been successful. Secondly, we propose that if by then the application for interim funding has not been approved, the Commission should then hear further submissions and decide the application for a postponement and we propose thirdly that the Commission should direct the Secretary to inform the legal representatives of the injured and arrested persons that in the absence of interim funding the application for a postponement will be heard on, decided on Monday. More than a week ago, the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria dismissed advocate Dalim Bofu's application for the state to pay the legal cost of his clients. His temporary withdrawal saw four other parties, including AMCU and the families of the mine workers, also temporarily pull out of the participation. He also asked for a postponement until the 19th of next month. Mbofu was not present at the commission. Spium Kiza, SABC News. Top stories this hour, wage talks between labor unions and the Chamber of Mines collapsed this morning after coal producers offered a wage increase of 5%, up from an initial of 4%. Solidarity's General Secretary is Gideon Duplessis. We know what our members' expectations are, but we're also fully aware and conscious of the fact that the industry that we are negotiating in is also under huge pressure. South Sudan remains calm a day after the country's president, Salva Kiir, sacked his entire cabinet. Spokesperson for the South Sudan embassy is Peter Buyo. The situation is normal. Uh, the population is on standby to hear more news about the cabinet president and the, and the leadership of the country came to an understanding that uh, this number of ministries is unsustainable. The team today is Tarazelo Dlamini, Mabubuluka, and Mandi Samkrelu, technical producer Mark Prella, executive producers Busichan and Obrisechi. My name is Bongi Kuala. Let's do it again tomorrow for your Friday edition of Midday Live. Till then, enjoy the rest of your listening. Nancy Richards up next with Otherwise. Bye.